Good morning. My name is Chris Calzi. I am the pastor at Encounter Church, and I want to welcome you. As Jason said earlier, if this is your first time, if you're here today, um, we want to welcome you. If you call Encounter Church home and you're a regular, we're so glad you're here today. We're excited about Easter. Today I'm wrapping up a series that we've been over the last month called Why in the World? And I would encourage you, if you, if you haven't heard any of those, we've processed um, difficult moments. We've processed through how do we deal with difficult people. And we've processed how do we become the type of people who make a difference in the lives of others. What I want to do today as we close up our series is ask why in the world about this day, Easter. When I was in sixth grade, I remember very distinctly one of these why in the world moments. Um, I am not naturally gifted in the language arts categories of uh, learning, and I'm just being very candid. I uh, almost didn't graduate high school, not because I had a low IQ, but because I could not write very well. Um, I, when I got into grad school, my first ever paragraph that I wrote was eight pages long. And uh, my professor, my grad school professor said, how did you graduate college? And I wondered the same thing, right? Um, because my undergrad was biochemistry. We didn't have to write. You didn't have to know English very well. You just needed to be able to describe what you saw. And this beaker boiled for this amount of time at this temperature and nothing blew up. I mean, that was the extent of our English requirements in the sciences. And I loved it. But in sixth grade, I had this English teacher that was pretty much committed to making sure that everyone loved English, and not only loved English, but fully understood this whole concept called conjugation, which is a very strange word to me. But she would make us sit down, and she would give us these words, and we would have to conjugate pages and pages, pluperfect. Like, who in the world uses that, right? I mean, these, these perfect, progressive, past perfect, and we would just... You, me, I, he, she, it, and we would just conjugate, conjugate. Con I mean, it was just writing and writing and writing and writing. And I remember around the fifth or sixth page of the first kind of week that we were starting into this because our teacher believed that all of success in life hinged on your ability to conjugate a verb, right? And I disagreed with it. And I was just like, why in the world do we need to learn this? Why do I need to know how to write an English word that describes an action that began in the past and is continuing on into the present and into the indefinite future? Or maybe some of you had that same question when you were in eighth grade and you shifted from math being about numbers to letters. And you said, what is happening? Why in the world do I need to know algebra? Right? I just want to make money. And money is numbers. Not letters, right? Maybe it was in calculus or chemistry, but we've all been in those places and in those moments of life where we're like, why in the world am I having, am I having to learn this? And unfortunately, that continues into adulthood, right? You go to a seminar that your work requires or you go into some new license thing and you just sit there for two hours and watch a video that looks like it was VHS transcribed to digital. And you're like, why am I having to watch this? And I think if we're honest, we can say that. Some of us may say the same thing about Easter. Why in the world does the, the headline 2,000 years ago of a dead man coming back to life make a difference today? That's 2,000 years ago. Why in the world does Easter even matter? Beyond the fact that we get together with our families, we eat a really good meal, we laugh, we get to connect with people. Why does this matter? I think that's a fair question. I think it's an honest question. And then maybe you're here today and you would say, I think I'm, I'm a Christian and I, I buy into this, but you know what? That's true. 
why, why does Easter matter? And where in the world did the bunny come from? And why does a bunny lay eggs? We should ask these questions, people. If it doesn't bother you that we celebrate a bunny laying eggs, right, that there should be those kind of honest moments where we say, why? Why does this matter? And to deal with that question and to answer that question, I want us to look at one of the first, inter- first interactions around Easter. Um, because I think in this moment that Jesus has with these ten followers who are interacting with him for the first time gives us a picture of the tangible differences that Easter can make. That Easter made 2,000 years ago. And that I believe that Easter can still make today. So we're going to kind of run through, we're going to process a lot of information. And so just going to give you that disclaimer. You may not believe or buy. This is the craziest things that Christians believe. Right? You just need to own that. This is, this is really, really, really odd. This is the big if. If God came to earth and then died on a cross and then came back to life, then that's just strange. It's extraordinary. And so we're going to operate under the assumption of stepping into this room with these ten guys and asking the same questions and struggling with the same tensions that they were managing that day. So if, if you have the Encounter Church app, I'd encourage you to go ahead and click on Sermon Notes. It'll actually fire up, and I'll have the verse that we're going to be in today. If you have a physical Bible, um, which is increasingly becoming rare in today's um, age, um, you can turn to John 20. Right? John 20 is going to be about 60% of the way through that physical book. John is the fourth letter um, of a group of letters called the Gospels, and those were letters that were about the recording of Jesus' life specifically. These were Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. John's unique because John was the youngest of all of the disciples, all of the followers of Jesus. He was the youngest, and he and Jesus had this special relationship. And John writes because John writes from this vantage point where Matthew, Mark, and Luke were just written a few few decades after Jesus' resurrection and the beginning of the church. Um, John writes towards the end of his life. John lives the longest of all the the followers of Jesus. He gets into his 90s, which is an extraordinary feat for that day and age in first century. And and John is writing this letter with the reflection of seeing the Christian movement birth and, and progressing far beyond Jerusalem where it started. And He's like, you know, there's some elements of Jesus' life that I feel like have, have been missing, and I want to capture it. And so John being in the room that day gives us this personal kind of eyewitness account of what it was like that first day. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of set the backdrop, and this is the passage we're going to work through today. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So what you kind of find as this story's opening up, as John's recounting that day, is that we find a group of individuals um, locked together in a small room in fear. This is the first day of the week, the Friday, uh, what we would call our Friday. Um, Jesus had been crucified. Saturday is, in the Jewish calendar, a Sabbath, and so Jews did not work on Sabbath, and so it was kind of a a break day. Now we're in Sunday, which the Jewish calendar called the first day of the week. The followers of Jesus had just watched their leader be crucified, and the thought was, okay, they've had one day off because it's the Sabbath. Now they're coming for us, because it was not a secret that these leaders... um, 
of the Jewish people were out to crush this fledgling movement known as Christianity. And so the disciples knew this is, this is the day they're coming for us too. Because if they can stamp out these 10 guys, the Christian movement has no hope. To top it off, they'd gotten word that day from a, a few of the ladies who had went to the tomb to, to kind of do some sacrificial kind of like kind of anointing, things like that. They didn't have an embalming structure back then, so they would pour uh, kind of perfumes and things on the body. And ladies had traveled there that morning to kind of begin the work on Jesus' body since it had been a Sabbath the day before, and the tomb is empty. And their assumption is not that there's a resurrection. The assumption is that someone has stolen Jesus' body, which is a very logical assumption, right? Your first thought if you see an empty casket is not someone has walked out of it, right? You think someone's moved the body. And so now they're concerned because they've gotten word that the body has been moved. And the only reason that the body would be moved would be the Jewish leaders looking to, to completely ridicule and further just disgrace the name of Jesus. That these Jewish leaders have been plotting and scheming on their day off to just really publicly shame this whole thing Jesus started. And so there's this intense fear that everything's over. And they're locked in a room Hiding, to, hiding together because they had left everything to follow Jesus. They had slid all their chips in with him. And now it looked like they had gone bankrupt. They had walked away from their job. They had walked away from their life. And in three years of this incredible run, they see their leader murdered. And now there's confusion and there's chaos. And they're wondering, what in the world do we do? Can we hide out here for the rest of our lives? And it says that Jesus comes to them. And his opening statement is, peace be with you. It's a very common greeting, even in the Middle East today. You would actually hear this if you were to travel to the Middle East. You'd hear shalom. But it's interesting, Jesus' first statement is peace. Peace be with you. That's his like, hello. I am back from the dead. I'm in the room with you. And his lead foot is peace be with you. Which is quite interesting because it's exactly what I would need to hear as I was screaming in the fetal position on the floor. Because I'm seeing a ghost. This is the return of the zombies. Or Jesus just walked out of the tomb. And it's a terrifying moment. They're already marked by fear, and Jesus steps in, and here's the first thing, the first difference that Easter makes. Jesus walks in, and in, in the midst of stepping into that room, he exchanges their personal chaos for peace, right? He says, peace be with you. He says it twice, actually. There's a reason he says it twice, because he's really trying to communicate, this is not a greeting. This is an exchange. This is not something I'm saying. This is something I'm giving. And it says that they were overjoyed, right, that he shows them his side, he shows them his scars, and that they're caught up by that, and in the midst of realizing this is actually Jesus, they have joy. Their chaos, their personal kind of just distraughtness on the inside has been completely replaced with peace. And what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't change their circumstances, Right? They're in that room. The Jewish leaders are still out to get them. Their lives are still in danger. But where there had been panic, there's now peace. 
And it wasn't because their circumstances changed. It was because they had changed. And that's a significant difference because many of us live with the reality of circumstances that we can't change. And we can buy into the same lie that the disciples had bought into, that peace can happen when I change my circumstances. That if I can just change my job, if I can just change my family dynamics, if I can just change where I live, if I can just change where my kids are in school, then I'll have peace. And Jesus steps in and says, peace be with you. Because there's something far more powerful than a peace that, that buys into the belief that if I just change my circumstances, everything works out. It's a peace that says no matter where my circumstances are, I believe things will work out. That's what Jesus steps in and he offers. They thought they needed their circumstances changed. And Jesus said, no, you need to change. They had been so used to living their lives as thermometers that they never even realized that they could be the thermostats. That they could set the climate no matter what was going on around them. Jesus steps in and says, stop living the thermometer life. You're a thermostat. I'm setting peace on the inside so that it might radiate to the outside. And that was the, the powerful message of Easter is that peace was not something that you brought externally. It was something that happened internally. That Jesus on the cross, paying for the brokenness in our lives, starts to, to reconcile peace with God and humanity. You see, the, the, under the backdrop of the Jewish worldview, was this idea that God and humanity had been separated, right? Which is, there's two logical ways if you're, you're looking at the world. There's two logical ways that you kind of break this thing down if you're trying to figure out if there's a God. One is that you look at the brokenness in the world, you look at the terrorist attacks of last week, and you make one logical assumption, which is that there is no God. But that's not the only logical conclusion. The Jewish understanding of the world was the second logical conclusion. It's not that there isn't a God. It's also that there's a potential that God and humanity have something separating them. And that earth has the absence of the goodness and the peace that you would think God would bring, not because there isn't one, but because there's been a division between the two. And that Jesus on the cross serves as the bridge to begin to bring God and man back together. And that's why he says, peace I bring. Because when you start to experience peace in here because of the peace you have with God, what starts to happen is it starts to not just fill you up, but it starts to spill into the relationships around you. It's why you've seen it reversed um, very kind of, you've seen you and I, we have bad days, right? And something internally is just not right, and everyone else pays for it, right? You want to kick a cat, right? I mean, which might just be normal for most of us. But you just feel this internal angst, and everyone else pays for it. But the reverse is also true. When there is an internal peace, everyone else experiences it too. And it spills into our other relationships. And Jesus is saying, I have brought peace. I have, I have satisfied the religious structures. I've satisfied all the rules and the laws that you as Jews would have known about in the Old Testament. Like, I fulfilled that because they had lived under guilt. They had lived under shame. They had lived under the oppressiveness of never being good enough for God. And Jesus steps in and says, no, you don't have to be because I am for you. 
So a perfect picture of this, um, last Christmas I was flying with my family, and I, I tend to travel a lot, and because of that, um, I fly with the same airline. I have um, kind of a priority status, and so I, I get these perks and these benefits, which most of the time, as, as a kind of a frequent tra traveler, I forget about them, right? They're just kind of the normal for me, but I happen to have my wife and my daughter flying with me, and I was like, oh, yeah, because I looked at their ticket, and I realized that they had the benefits that I had. And so here's my little four-year-old, and there's this long line, and they're like boarding, you know, and it's this whole the process, and everybody's ready to get on the plane because everybody rushes to get on the plane to sit down because that's all you're going to be doing for the next few hours anyway. And so there's this huge long line of people waiting to get on this airplane. And then... Um, I hear, you know, they make the call for, you know, first class and then people with status, right? And I look at my wife and my daughter and say, it's, we can board now. So hundreds of people in this line, and then there's this rope, and I grab my little four-year-old, and we go walking, and she's just got the swagger. I was like, oh, yeah. Because we're walking by hundreds of people. And she's got her little teddy bear, and she's like, I'm good. Now, what's funny is that this little girl, who's four years old, has not earned any of those privileges. But I had. And because she was attached to me, she experienced all the benefits and the privileges of my work and accomplishment. What I'd paid for had paved the way for her to walk onto that plane early. That's what Jesus did on the cross. When he says, peace, I give to you, it's because he had established something. And because of our attachment to him, we walk under the privileges of the peace he brings. That does not require our circumstances to change, but has transformed us from the inside out. And that this peace that he brings releases us from the guilt and the shame. It releases us from trying to earn God's love and favor because we already have it. And so we're not motivated by guilt. We're motivated by gratitude for that kind of love and that type of grace. But Jesus doesn't just exchange personal chaos for peace. He also comes in and you find that they're in the midst of fear. And yet in verse 21, he calls them. He says, I send you out. Right? He says, so the Father has sent me. This mission I've been living, I'm now sending you. Which is quite a bold statement. If you kind of just take a step back and realize, here's a group of men who moments before have been locked in the room, retreating in fear, and now Jesus is calling them to go forward in faith. It's like, I want you to go. And they're like, well, we've been comfortable staying. Right? I want, I want you to lead. And they're like, nope, nope, locked doors are good. But there's this moment, there's this powerful moment where Jesus and his words and his commission to them to go has power because Jesus is alive. Like three days ago, he had been dead. And the disciples knew what we know, that funerals are final. You don't go to a funeral and then expect to bump into them at the next high school football game. Right? That's not normal. Executed men do not do encores. Ever. And yet here is one standing right in front of them that they all personally watched being murdered days before. 
And what Jesus does is that Jesus completely upends their whole paradigm and understanding of the world. December 17, 1903, there was a kind of a similar shift. Um, the Wright brothers on the beaches of North Carolina, right, they, they put together this small makeshift mechanical thing that we now call an airplane. And for 12 seconds, at the height of 20 feet, for the length of 120 feet, they forever upend the paradigm that for centuries before had said man cannot achieve mechanical flight. And in one moment, in the course of 12 seconds, two brothers whose primary business had been bicycle repairs demonstrate and shatter the notion that man cannot fly. To the point that July 20th, 1969, humanity travels 230,000 miles at the speed of almost 25,000 miles per hour and lands on the moon. An object that had always been forever distant and completely unattainable had, all, had, had become obtainable. It had gotten closer all because two brothers had gotten 20 feet up above the ground. 20 feet paved the way was the first step for 230,000 plus miles being crossed. And the reason why that happens in about 50 years, less than 60 years, is because there had been a paradigm shift. All of a sudden, they realized man can fly. And if man can reach the sky, why can't man break through Earth's gravity? And if man can break through Earth's gravity, why can't we get to the moon? And now, for our kids and our grandkids, they're living in a day and age where people are dreaming, well, if we can make it to the moon, why can't we make it to Mars? And to realize that it is within possibility that of 150, 200 years of the first flight ever, our species could literally be landing on another planet. All because of a paradigm shift. And Jesus steps in and he creates this paradigm shift that is incredibly powerful for them. C.S. Lewis said it best that he's like, I, I believe in Jesus in the same way that I believe in the sun. Not only because I see it, but through it, I see everything else. That if Jesus is alive, if a dead man defeated the grave, that changes everything. It's a whole new paradigm that you live under. That's why they could go sit. That's why they could go with courage. That's why those 10 men would spark a revolution that now 2,000 years later, we're in this room gathered because of those men and the paradigm shift that Jesus shifted in their hearts and lives because he was alive. Paradigm shifts can be powerful. That if Jesus is alive, we start looking for dead things. We're not afraid of them. We have courage and hope. That's why if Jesus is alive, then we could look at our marriage even if it is dying and believe that there is hope for it. Because surely if Jesus can conquer the grave, then maybe he could get past my griping and bad attitude and break through the barriers that we have that's preventing us from having a great relationship. That if Jesus is alive, then we can imagine what it looks like to not see dead ends as the end, but as new beginnings. You see, if Jesus is alive, we don't believe in dead ends. Because death was conquered. And the grave is empty. And that means that living in a post-divorce context 
we don't see the death of our love life. We see the power of the resurrection that can redefine where we are and give us a better future. That we can look at the brokenness of where we've come from and imagine that I do not have to be defined by where I have come from, but by the power that will carry me where I can go. That we are not zombies walking around barely making it through. That we have been given a life and a power that can lead us into better places. And that should inspire us. If Jesus is alive, then my dreams are not dead. They're just sleeping. And they can be awakened. That we can look at our jobs, we can look at our lives, we can look at our relationships, and instead of living chained and believing that there is no way we'll ever have a breakthrough, we can start to live and process with a paradigm that says, if Jesus is alive, then maybe there's hope there too. The paradigm shift is incredible. And it breathes life and hope. And not just through us and our individual lens, but I think even collectively as a people that we can look at a drug crisis in our state and imagine what could be. Not if death was reigning through drugs, but if life was reigning in hope. That families being restored, that there's something greater than the power of some chemical, but that there is a victory over grave itself. That as a people we can dream. And imagine what our communities could look like. What not just our families could look like, but what our town, our communities, our cities could become. Because we live under the paradigm of death was defeated. And the grave has been robbed. And so there is no such thing as a dead end. There is an opportunity for a new beginning. It doesn't matter how many terrorists attempt to thwart and, and proclaim that hatred and darkness reigns, we know that in the end, love is greater than hatred. That the light is stronger than the darkness. And that if God can transform the heart of a terrorist named Saul, who were killing Christians, and turned them into the greatest Christian missionary who has ever lived, that there is no one beyond the reach of hope, grace, and love. Not even you, and not even your loved ones. But that's the power of Easter. That's the power of hope. When, about three years ago, my wife had gone on a field trip. She was a school teacher. I had, it was my first weekend keeping, kind of the first few days of keeping my daughter. And that was quite terrifying for me because um, I am not one gifted in the arts of babying and um, understanding their, like, nonverbal cues and, I mean, I'm crying, something's incredibly wrong, but they just cry for everything, and I don't have that ability. My wife had to understand that cry was hungry, that cry was tired, that cry was a poopy, and I just heard cries. And so my wife leaves, and she's on her field trip, and she's got the kids settled in. She's a fifth grade teacher. She gives me a call, and she's like, how's everything going? I'm like, so far, good. I've made it. You've been gone five hours. I've got five hours in, which is a victory. And, um, and I said... I said, well, hold on a second. She's coughing, so, um, so I'll give you a call later. So I went upstairs, and um, my daughter, who is less than a year old at that point, um, is starting to cough to the point that it's uncontrollable. And so I go to pick her up, and I, I put her on her changing table just to kind of, you know, try to help her out. And she's, she tries to, like, pull herself and move, and she collapses. And I know she's starting to drool. 
and she can't breathe. And I'm home by myself, and I, I don't know everything, but I know this is bad, so I dial 911. And, like, moments passed, and ambulance show up at my house, and fire department show up at my house, and now I'm holding my little girl, and they're, they're giving her breathing treatments and oxygen because she can barely breathe. And I can't drive her, so I'm put in the back of an ambulance, and I call my wife to say, we're headed to the hospital, Ella couldn't breathe, and um, they're rushing her to the hospital to try to get everything put back together, and I don't know, um, she's four hours away, and so she gets in the car, and it's around midnight at that point, and she starts driving, crazy thing, um, I've heard of people hitting a deer, a deer literally runs out and tries to commit suicide and runs into her car, and so she's driving, and she, a deer hits her. And so she texts me, and she's like, I just got hit by a deer. And I'm like, you hit a deer? No, I got hit by a deer. And I'm like, keep rolling, right? Because I'm headed to a hospital. And I'm sitting in the back of this ambulance ride holding my little girl, who's only about a year old. And um, I realize that I am completely, completely all by myself, and I'm absolutely powerless. Because right? there's nothing more powerless than having your child sick, and you can't do anything about it. And, um, but what was crazy was I was sitting back there um, by myself, holding a little oxygen thing right up against her tiny little face, and this incredible, profound sense of peace and hope just crept in. And see, I think for many of us, we experience hype. If I can get this job, if I can get into this place, if I can get this relationship, then my life will be okay. And Easter does not give us a hope that is hype. It doesn't give us a hope that, oh, everything's going to turn. Is, Easter is not about some sentimental notion of pie in the sky. Our lives will all be perfect. Easter is stronger than that. It's a hope when everything else in your world is falling apart, there is a foundation that can still support you. That I found that night while holding my daughter, unable to hold it together, that there was someone greater than me holding and that my hope had the power not just to carry me through my successes, but to, to walk me through my failures. And to lead me through dark, dark, scary places of thoughts within, of realities and mistakes, that hope that could push me through those dark places. And that even if those things didn't turn all right, that somehow there was a sense of confidence that in the end, that Easter was about a hope that could Somehow, even if it didn't turn out all right, I would still be okay through it. Because the greatest enemy of all had been conquered. And my daughter made it through that night, but I wouldn't trade that moment I had in the back of that ambulance because I, I realized, you know what? This can hold me. This is stronger. This is greater than my biggest fears, my greatest successes. This is greater. And that, that special hope that we find in Jesus that can hold and sustain us in our sufferings and our failures and our uncertainties and even our successes is why in the world Easter matters.